0: Previously on Storyological. <laughs> <laughs> Emma, did you learn how to speak in East London yet?
1: No, what's East London? Hey, bro, bro,
0: bro, yeah, yo, yo, bro, bro, we're here, bro, bro, yeah. Mm. <laughs> oh my God. Right, yeah, it's,
1: yeah. It's a bit more Leicester than London. Probably. Cheers.
0: Cheers. Um, right, so what are we doing?
1: We're going to record a new intro and a new close for the Strange Horizons frankenstein episode
0: frankenstein did we make an episode about frankenstein because
1: it's coupled together sewn together out of all the episodes
0: yes and then brought to life through the power of lightning otherwise known as electricity
1: or strange horizons
0: do they not run on electricity how do they put their website up
1: magic beans is that how it works
0: is that like a genre thing is it like all the f- the fantasy and sci-fi mags have a different? Yeah, it's like Disney fairy dollars. tale tool. <laughs> they, a
1: they what? Use, it's like Disney dollars, <laughs> yes. you know, and it's magic beans. That's that's how the whole economy. They runs. all do it
0: with magic beans. They don't have their each of their own genre specific.
1: No, well, I mean, well, I mean they used to.
0: thematic specific.
1: They used to, but now yeah. it's a universal. Oh, it's system. commoditized. Right, exactly. It's like
0: the European Union.
1: Yeah, I don't know about that anymore.
0: Well, like the eurozone. So there are some genre mags, maybe like tour.com, that are Mm. a bit like the UK, that are like, whatever, we got our own (laughs) island over here, it's fine. You guys do your own thing at the worlds and the whatnots.
1: Yeah, no one else can even spell novella. So this is our second historiological Strange Horizons crossover extravaganza.
0: That's true, one per year so far. Uh
1: Well, we didn't do one in the first year.
0: That's right, we didn't do one in the first year, so we got to catch up.
1: The amazing thing about doing these crossover episodes with Strange Horizons is it means that they publish the stories that we talk about, so you can definitely read them online because I know sometimes people struggle to get hold of them, they can't get them through the library or other, other areas, so we've picked two stories and two of our discussions from our archive episodes that we're particularly excited to share. So my pick for this crossover episode is Fisherman by Nalo Hopkinson.
0: Uh, And my pick is Directions by Judy Budnitz, which was in her collection Flying Leap.
1: And Nalo's story was in her collection Skinfolk. uh, Came out in the early 2000s, I think.
0: Uh Ah, and Flying Leap, I believe, came out... In the late 1990s, it was almost like they were always headed toward each other.
1: <laughs> you know, something I noticed, though, about when I went back and looked at the stories and listened to our discussion of them is that despite the time that's passed between us and the the moments of these stories creation, they don't feel far away at all. They feel just as present, just as certain, just as settled in their perspective, but not So not like sunk into their moment in time.
0: When I was thinking about Judy Budnett's story and thinking about her collection, I was thinking about how in the past year, Carmen Maria Machado published her collection and it's done really amazing. And I was thinking, God, I hope that people that, that love Carmen stories can find Judy Budnitz stories. And I'm glad that this this crossover we're doing with Strange Horizons is going to put Judy Budnitz's story and name out there to an audience maybe that hasn't encountered her before.
1: Right, because she hasn't had she hasn't put anything out for a while. I don't know if she's even still creating.
0: I believe uh, some operas and and things have been made based on her work. Oh,
1: I thought you were going to say she's writing operas. I was like, wow, what an amazing uh, transition. Uh,
0: It's interesting, these stories next to each other, because uh, Fisherman, the amount of detail, the physicality of that story is so muscular. It has this great force to it. Mm -hmm. And Judy Budnitz's story, Directions, the way it's written, has uh, a different kind of detail, a different kind of perspective that actually feels more old school, um, fairy Mm tale-ish or folksy. Folksy, not folksy. One of the joys of doing Storylogical is being, being able to talk about stories in a way that is diverse, <laughs> not, not in the sense that different people have written them, but that stories exist in all of these different forms across genres that don't, don't quite fit. And I think there would be a tendency to default if you described Nalo's style of writing to say that's literary, mm-hmm. and if you describe Judy's style of writing as saying that's genre or fantasy-ish. And yet because of who they are and the milieu in which they came up in, they're actually placed in opposite places.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that makes me so excited that we do this with Strange Horizons because they're always so uh, open to... To things that don't quite fit in other places, that don't quite match people's expectations. And so I'm excited that people are going to get to read them there.
0: So uh, if you haven't read them, you should do that. Yes.
1: So you can go and read them now and come back and listen to our discussion. Or you can just, you know, listen to our discussion and then head into the the reading. Whichever way you do it, we hope you enjoy it. This is Storyological, a podcast about amazing stories.
0: That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camarude.
1: And I'm E.G. Kosh.
0: My pick for this week is Directions by Judy Budnitz. It is a story in her collection Flying Leap, which came out in 1998, and is an amazing collection that everyone should read, uh, probably yesterday.
1: Just go back and sort it out.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we won't know. You can tell us you read it yesterday. Directions is a story that begins in this manner. This is a city of many faces. It folds itself into dark corners, It stretches out its fingers of neon signs and asphalt. It unrolls itself like a magic carpet. It changes from day to day. It had a heart that beats in the center, though no one knows where the center is. This is a city of paths and destination. A hundred thousand people make their way through the maze. Their paths meet and cross. They leave their trails of broken hearts and breadcrumbs behind them. They think their ways are secret, their desires unknown. But they are like the ants in an ant farm. Anyone watching from above can see exactly where they are going and where they have been.
1: It's just yes, 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 please. Yes, I would like more of that all the time.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is it is true. One of uh one of the greatest things in the world, clearly, that we both love is just just give me a voice with a sense of perspective in it. That's that's what we want. Give me in the uncharted backwaters of the Milky Way galaxy, <laughs> there is the third planet. Oh, bam! Okay, good, let's go from there. Uh yeah, so the story goes from there, goes from that perspective. It does like a very like, beautiful, kind thing a story can do, which is, it's like, uh, okay, this is this is the kind of story I'm going to tell you. Now I'm going to tell you that kind of story. Like, you might be Ready? surprised <laughs> here and there by the things, like, the cool ways I describe it, but I have set up for you. This is my perspective.
1: Mm-hmm. And right in those first couple of lines or the first paragraph that you, that you read out,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I'm already just comfortably uncomfortable, uh, you mm. know, feeling confident that this writer and this story is gonna go somewhere cool and interesting yeah yeah yeah. i don't have to be nervous like when you watch a really bad stand-up and you're like oh no yeah that
0: could be why like as let's say anxious sensitive people we respond really well to stories that have an assured comforting kind of voice not Mm. authoritative just assured like i wrote i wrote down that to me in this story, as in a lot of Judy Bundes stories, but in particular this one, there's an assured and bright sadness to it uh, that carries through from that opening paragraph throughout. Uh, and just so you know, what happens in the story is there are several different people that we follow and meet. There are the clerks that are trying to find the theater district. There is uh, a couple of thieves named, I believe, uh, Vince and Nick, maybe. Uh, yeah, a couple of thieves named Vince and Nick that are trying to figure out their way Uh, to the underground beneath the bank so they can rob it. Uh, There's a girl named Ladley who's trying to find something she has lost, though she doesn't know what it is, but she's pretty sure she can find it if she just goes out and looks for it. Uh, And there's a guy named Gordon who's just been told that he's dying and who, I love this, uh, Budnett's, partly grasps his sense of sadness about dying because he just focuses on aspects of old people and he's jealous of it oh, he's like I oh i really man. love
1: the folds in her neck <laughs> yeah. oh i'm
0: so envious of that man's bald head i was like
1: <laughs> yes okay that's great good job
0: uh and then also there is you you are a character yeah. in the story and you are lost and you're also trying to find something oh, one of the things i love about the story is that so all these characters are set up and in a way i'll use cinematic terminology the way that she edits them together there are a lot of beautiful cuts so that like for example in their wanderings around the city they find this map shop and the way the story is laid out they all find the map shop like kind of at slightly different stages of finding like one sees the shop and then one is at the window and then one is inside Mm. and then there's a moment where
1: it's a real crescendo as they mm -hmm. all arrive at the map shop in their own way each
0: time each time something important is going to happen, that little crescendo happens. So it's like, it is like listening to a symphony and it kind of goes yeah. sh- 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 over and over again until like the final big sweep happens. Uh, and it's, a, it's in that structure is the same assuredness of, of the voice.
1: Yeah. I thought that making you, the reader, one of the characters that is looking for something in this is mm-hmm. the smartest of very many smart choices Mm. that she makes because it could feel, I don't know, difficult to access, difficult to kind of get into exactly what she's trying to say. I don't think it would. But well, go with it. But go with it. Yeah. Because then when she brings the you character in and tells you that you're looking for something and that you're kind of like, uh, you know, you're hunched into your collar and you've got your chin down and your collar's up against the wind and and you're looking for something and you're not sure what it is. and And she paints you with this kind of angry uncertainty. That I mm-hmm. really recognized when I feel lost, yeah. that is how I feel. Yeah. I feel uncertain and like I push that uncertainty out as anger. And so it, it just echoed so powerfully with with that kind of reality for me.
0: Yeah, it reminded me of... Uh, <laughs> Uh, so when you take pictures on an iPhone, and probably any camera, there's a setting called HDR, which is called high dynamic resolution, which just means that your camera will take three different pictures at different exposures to try to get as much detail as possible, in all the different light. And this story felt like it had had a kind of high dynamic resolution to it, because it, it felt like all the details were clear from the highest possible viewpoint of humans as these ants wandering around, down to like what you say, a kind of perfect encapsulation of, of what it feels like to be lost in yourself and also the details of like, yeah, the person that was looking at the bald wrinkles, but also the conversations between the clerks are rendered with a lot of specificity that is that is lovely to look at. I think you're, you're very, is like it's so right, the that second person perspective, the you, <laughs> something, let's just say extraordinary, uh, something extraordinary about what you just described and how she renders it in a kind of ambiguous detail mm. so it's like a perfect kind of pop song in that it gives you the sense that you are that person and you have that emotion but it never gives you so much detail that it pushes you away mm. the other sections with the other characters it gives you enough detail that you can see them and believe in them yeah but you can in the use other yeah you can see them in other exactly
1: this story has uh, a wonderful chorus in it in the same way as violet world that we spoke about last time as each character finds the map shop and goes in to ask uh, ask the map keeper, the map maker. Map maker. If for help, they all come out with versions of the phrase, do you have anything like that? They explain yeah, what yeah. they're looking for. Do you have anything yes. like that? And as the third and the fourth and the fifth time that it's said, it starts to feel like this desperate cry. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. It just lives in all of us like a silent scream. Do yeah. you... Do you have anything like that? Can you can you help me on my way? Yeah. Uh, and part of it
0: is just delight that they each get a different map. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it. Uh, be- I mean, yeah, it, it can mean something allegorically as well. Uh, it's true. Uh, partly I'm just so delighted by the different ways that the mapmaper gives you a map. Uh, one, the, the Clarks get a map that just gets torn away by the wind and they have to <laughs> chase after yeah. it. And the That's lady cute. in chasing after it discovers a balance that she hasn't found before in her life. Gordon gets a map uh, that doesn't exist because the map are like, I don't have the map you need Some, somewhere out there in the world. You'll find it when you need it. Oh, yeah, I could just keep talking about the different maps, because I love it. But I do have something else I could say. Go on. Are you ready? Um, so we, we've talked about the voice. We've talked about the editing. Something else I love that is small but ubiquitous in the story is just layout. By which I mean, in the story, it doesn't follow the convention that dialogue is broken out into a separate paragraph.
1: Right, it's very The, the
0: dialogue is kept inside of the paragraph. And I at first when I read it, I just... I kind of notice it in passing it's something i like doing in my stories but i don't really i'm not thinking about why she does it at the time but then after the story i was thinking about it why and i thought well it's almost in a sense it gives it on the one hand that sense of god perspective because you're so far above everything that these people's voices aren't really as separate as you would see in a regular story they're all encapsulated um and so as part of that it, it that is like at this distance um, how people look, how they talk, the city they live in, the things that happen around them are all part of one whole thing, mm. which is what she's describing at the beginning of the story as well. And it's just so small, but so perfect. Because when you look at the page, you just see these distinct blocks that are whole and like unto themselves. Blocks. Yeah, like city blocks. Yeah,
1: for, for me, that including the dialogue inside of the paragraph was had much more of a feeling of making it an oral Story, like she's mm-hmm. sitting next to us and telling us this story about these people and their search for the map maker. Yeah, yeah, and and that too was another thing that just brought me right up into it.
0: We know how you're saying that you love the second person perspective and you love that sense of it being a story told to you. Um, I love how, in a way, she she tips her hat to it at the end of the story because, you know, as as we do, if you don't want to know the end of the story, you can press pause and go read it if you want to, whatever. At the end of the story, uh, you know, everybody's kind of found their way to the place they wanted to go in whatever roundabout, unconscious, or conscious method. <laughs> and the mapmaker is looking at it, and he gets kind of happy and smiley and dreamy and falls asleep and knocks over his ink, and it spills all over the map. Rather than saying, all of these characters' lives took a glorious, disastrous, unexpected turn. That's not the way that Judy writes it. Judy writes it, builds all over the map and all your lives take Mm -hmm. a glorious, disastrous, unexpected turn. So it reinforces that sense, like you said, that she's sitting there with all of her readers who are reading the story in one specific place and time and delivers that last line to all of us. It really, like as we're talking about it, it makes me wish that she would just come to London and, yes, and, and read the story. Out. Yeah, we could hang out and she could read the story. We'd be like, hey, hey, Judy. Could you, I just, look, <laughs> I don't want you to sign this book, but could you just read from this page to this page?
1: <laughs> the, one, the one aspect of the story that I had questions about or right. that didn't feel as compelling to me was the fact that, I think it's Gordon and Natalie, two of the people who were looking, what they end up with maps to is each other and they find each other as being part of... You know the next stage in their lives and while that was kind of cute that they you know it was a, it was nice in a structural way i never really got that sense that it was the exact right thing why they were each other's perfect match at that moment uh, well, yeah yeah i'm i can
0: understand that uh i think that because of the perspective that she has taken uh it's like asking why do mr and mrs clark Need a map that runs away from them. Why do the two thieves need a map that takes them to the underworld? From the put stories perspective, it doesn't matter why they need it. That's just what they got. And so, oh, I'm in with you in a couple of senses. One is I think that we're always suspicious of something romantic happening in a story, particularly now at this point of our lives. So when the Can two we thieves, you make it
1: sound like we're super cynical. <laughs> yeah,
0: I think in general a lot of people. I think. To speak ridiculously broadly, uh-huh. there may be a, a rise of earnestness, but I think that's just me. I just don't care anymore. I don't care that some people are cynical about romance. True love exists. It happens. Also, everyone dies and has cancer and there's a lot of pain. And mm-hmm. often true love only lasts for five seconds. doesn't mean it's not real if it only lasts for five seconds. That's, in fact, one of when the great definitions away, a great of true story
1: love. Called five second love.
0: <sighs> I think all of my stories are basically in that. <laughs> Um, they're all about a moment of love that either happens right at the end or right at the beginning, and you're either unraveling towards it or unraveling away from it. And so, yeah, I I enjoyed that there was only two characters that came together, rather than a feeling that all of the characters intersected. And I'm just, I just, at the end of that section where Gordon and Natalie find each other, Judy, the narrator, writes, says, she is a country he can live in. Here is a place he can be. And in the same way that you described that description of the second person perspective, the you, as having a sense of anger and uncertainty that you're familiar with. That description is a description of what it means to me to find someone. That it doesn't matter to me what the specifics of that situation. The whole idea of map making has presented her with, a, with, a, with a two sentences she can say in that moment that feel like a, a perfect description of one kind of love.
1: So I'm going to kick us off with a summary of uh, Fisherman by Nello Hopkinson which came out or which was in her collection Skinfolk which I think was 2002 so in this story a fisherman Casey visits the local whorehouse for the first time and in some of the most tender and sexy lovemaking scenes I've ever read Marianne the proprietor of the whorehouse shows Casey how to make love so the the tension in the story comes from the fact that Casey is a woman, but living the life of a fisherman and in Marianne finds for the first time, it seems like a kind of acceptance that she's never really found anywhere before in her village and in her life. And so after they finish, they go into the bar of the whorehouse where all of Casey's fisherman friends are and they go. She and Marianne get mocked, get called unnatural, but Marianne stands up for her and points out to the bully that, yeah, maybe his predilection for anal sex might be seen as unnatural by some people as well. And and the story finishes with this guy, the bully, Lenny, finally dealing Casey into the card game that the guys are playing and calling her fisherman. You know, that's the only identity that Casey has ever wanted and... Casey's finally getting it from the people that she, that are her community. And, you know, when when it gets to that point, after you've been through this giant emotional upheaval of the lovemaking, and then she gets that acceptance at the end. Oh, my God. I was racked with kind of great gulping sobs. It was so happy-making. I loved it.
0: Another story, like, like pet milk. It achieves its single effect. I remember hearing... Uh, hearing from a, I think one of one of her former clarion students Nala talking about understanding the bones of the story and I was thinking about how pet milk the bones of that story are very much about about memory and time and the the bones of a fisherman are are made of shame and i can't do that and who do you think you are like those bones are in the story very to extent, very simple bones of shame but then she she puts on this skin that kind of hides and reveals the structure throughout the story so
1: that's right. The, the shame is shown and revealed and hidden in so many different ways because Casey feels ashamed about so many different things. She feels ashamed about her body, for sure. But she also feels ashamed about the smell that she has from, um, you know, being a fisherman and in with the sea and the fish the whole time. And so what that does is allows Nalo to kind of build up the the stakes and the ideas from from very small bits like by the way kc i'm using she as the pronoun because i wasn't i wasn't 100 sure like if i talked to kc what would they want their pronouns to be
0: um as often happens to me when i read a story and i love it i adopt its language wholeheartedly so in all of my notes about the story i refer to them as they self all of, all of the moments of shame and fear to move forward in, in the act of, of making love with Marianne, uh, all centered around either her body or her job, more or less. There's like this one image at the very beginning of how she sees, or she's seeing that Marianne has all of this, this amazing stuff in her room, uh, like silk and this beautiful perfume. The fisherman doesn't feel like they're worth it. Like, you know, everything in the room is worth more than they are. And as well, there's this image that Marianne has this clear plane of glass. And in a way, that's, that's another bit of skin on the bones where it doesn't seem like it's about shame at all. But everything about the fact that the fisherman is focusing on that plane of glass is that they're seeing that clean plane of glass through the idea of shame. Because it's like, here's this Big pane of glass and it's so clean and so pure and you can see through it just fine. And the only plane of glass they got in the village is this cracked glass that this other guy has in their house and it's all it's a bit more murky and and so much of the feeling of the fishermen in the stories, they're they're wanting a, a sense of, of cleanness and clarity about about who they are and their and their place in the world. We were talking I think maybe maybe last week or the week before about about how stories Kind of go in circles, but move forward in the same way that the universe moves, like the planets going around and around in circles that are going outwards. Is in a way you can see this story as as shame is kind of this this well of gravity, and the fishermen keeps circling around it and getting a little further away and a little further away, trying to achieve escape velocity.
1: I thought of it a little bit like a seesaw. I- I felt like Casey had been kind of climbing up this steep, steep hill and suddenly she tipped over the fulcrum and Marianne had just grabbed her and pulled her down the other side and she just tumbled into this kind of sensuality and and Marianne catches her and makes it all okay and that is this wonderful kind of safe place to land for her.
0: Oh, something I thought the story did really well. It reveled in language, in a specific language of food and place. And so, every every bit of description that that Casey gives us, everything that they describe about their own body or the bodies around them, is is rooted in the very specific experience, the in the very specific experience of Casey. And you know, for example, sometimes when you read fiction, people want to dramatize and give you the sense that someone's nervous and they will describe the sensation in the person's body by saying that like their heart is racing or their palms are sweaty you see it a lot um but in a way that always only as as the reader pulls you into a a cliche idea of of a generic kind of body experiencing generic bodily reactions and it, it, even as me as a reader at a self, in a selfish way, those descriptions don't give me anything more of the story. I understand more than likely this is a real person and they have a heart and that it can beat fast. But like Nala uses every moment of description as a way to deepen the world around the character know, and, yeah, and deepen the character yeah. is and their place in the world. If, if Casey's heart is, is leaping around because, because Casey's nervous, then you get images not just of leaping, but like Casey said, that their heart was flapping around like a mullet on the planks of a pier, or you get descriptions of of Marianne as having hair curled up like the kind of cake that somebody made at at a party. Or there was this one. I really love this one moment. Uh, Nala wanted to uh, wanted to get us give us the sense of of what it felt like for Casey to be touching Marianne. And you get you get kind of a paragraph, a description of Casey uh, remembering their grandmother and this cocoa tea drink that they drank with condensed milk in it. Which I was like, bam, there you go, perfect uh, synergy, because pet milk is condensed milk. Yeah. Um, right. So through so it gives us a moment of of granny making this great cocoa tea drink and Casey sitting on granny's knee and feeling the velvet dress just so that back in the moment with Marianne, we can get this understanding of of the way it feels to touch Marianne's skin. There's
1: so many quotes I want to read from this because you're right, the, the language in it is so rich and you can taste every sentence as it goes by. Um, so this is a little section from early on in their lovemaking it says my breath only i'm not going to try a jamaican accent i think that would be a, a bad situation for everybody uh, so my breath only coming in little sips i feeling feverish and what happening down between my legs i ain't-, ain't even wanna think about i strong i could move my head away even though she's still holding it but i don't want to be rude i cast my eyes down instead and find myself staring at the two fat bubbies spilling out of she dress round and full like hop bread. He does eat with shark, but brown, skin dark brown. Oh, it's so lovely. I think, you know, not only is, not only is the food and the, the sensuousness or the food kind of the source of the sensuousness of the story, but like every, every description is filled with it. So she describes Marianne's laugh as coming out cracked and full up of, full up of holes. And I was like, Oh my goodness. I, I, You know, the the other story this made me think of, um, which also is uh, a non-contains lots of non-heterosexual lovemaking, is Fingersmith by Sarah Waters. And she's another writer who can make a moment between two people so beautiful and tense and intense and full of terror and wonder at the same time that I feel myself holding my breath as I read her. So for anybody who enjoyed this story and um, wants something else, that is um, about 100 times longer. Sarah Waters' books clock in at, I don't know, three or 400 pages. But Fingersmith is an amazing, amazing read
0: all those other amazing descriptions, from the food in her life to to the nets being cast into the sea, to the conch cells on the beach, to to what you're describing of of how Marianne's laugh was full of holes which was connected to this bell that was rung, this bronzed, kind of rusted bell that was rung to to call the village women out to help haul in the catch. And and Casey loved that bell and, you know, they just wanted to ring it, but they didn't want to make the village women mad. And I loved how the one moment where the language of Casey kind of escapes them is in a moment of climax during sex where when they're describing what it feels like in their body, they have they have no reference point. So suddenly the description of the body is just that the buzzing is like something.
1: What that section made me think of when you're saying, you know, she, she forgets her words is exactly that. She in that moment she forgets to be self-conscious about this body that she finds awkward and big and um she just describes it delightfully as boobaloops clumsy and but in that moment that's not who she is marianne has shown her how she can be you know how she can ride a storm
0: though that that description of of it being like lightning or riding the storm is the one place in the story where, like, when I say the language es- escapes uh, escapes Casey, is like it it becomes the the cliche. It becomes this kind of reaching for, for words and 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 feelings that are more like you would get from, I don't know, I don't know. But they're 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 generic in a way, and yet it is though that claiming of a kind of generic joy of, of sex and making love is triumphant and placed there in the story you feel the triumph of like yeah i can ride the storm um for for me like the the reason why it was so important for the story why it works so well for the story to be grounded in the potential reality is that shame generally sits very close to your body and that in a story where you where you're talking about 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 shame you don't want it to be a story where it feels like you're you're modifying things off the ground. You're using language to lift people out of themselves. You want, to, you want, and what this story does is it's placing people very firmly and joyfully in like the gorgeous salt-sweet kind of self. That's why I feel I felt like it was so triumphant, that in the climax was the moment where, where the shame and the body dropped away for a minute. A side note, I love how part of, of the... Of, of that, that circling back around shame and moving forward was a moment where, where Casey could say, uh, I don't want your fingers inside me. That's not who I am. And not to be about describing a shameful experience, but to be about, this is my body and this is what feels comfortable. And to be able to describe it like Casey did in a very clear way. It's like, you know, I am not a glove for you to wear. And Marianne to just return it as she does so often in the story, which is to take something that could feel shameful or wrong or awkward and give it back to Casey in this kind of shining, beautiful, uplifting all the way back to the very beginning, again, like putting skin on the bones that both hide and reveal Marianne brings out the shell and says, oh, the shell, you know, it smells like the sea, it smells beautiful, and it's amazing, and gives it to Casey, who feels like the sea smells like work and dirt and something wrong about it.
1: Oh, yeah, that, that, that moment when Casey says, no, this isn't for me, I think is... A perfect kind of baseline for the story or it helps it helps it feel like something other than Marianne's just taking her on this journey and doing whatever she wants but you know it helps us ground ourselves in Casey's desire like yeah she is choosing to go down this path she is choosing to have this physical and and physical intimacy and emotional release with Marianne it's not just being done to her. I think the only other thing I want to say about this story is, "Ah, oh, damn, just read it. It's amazing. There is no way our discussion can can do it justice, really. So, uh, it's in Nalo's collection Skin Folk, um, which is a book full of wonderful stories, uh, but this is the standout one for me thanks for listening readers if you have stories that you think you'd love to hear us discuss on a future episode please hit us up on twitter
0: we are at storyological
1: which is story
0: like the word oh like the letter
1: and logical
0: like aristotle uh if you would like to follow emma on twitter she is at eg kosh
1: and chris is at guvols c-u-v-o-l-s
0: You can find and like us on Facebook if you have not decided it is somehow perhaps culpable in war crimes. (laughs) Um, uh, We are at facebook.com slash storylogical.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, and we hope you did, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review there. And that helps other people find us.
0: Uh, And if you really enjoyed this podcast... Uh, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash storyological and support us there, which would be awesome.
1: If you support us at the $3 mark, then you get every month a newsletter from Chris, where Chris reviews pretty much everything he does and sees and watches in the month.
0: Some amount of.
1: Yeah. Some some amount of that. Um, this month, there is a particularly delightful discussion of the movie to all the boys I've loved before, which, spoiler alert, is so sweet. So delightful.
0: Also, unrelated, M and I met uh, at the Clarion Writers Workshop in San Diego in 2012. And each year, our class does a fundraising anthology for Clarion. It's an anthology of stories and poems and whatnots of us, Awkward Robots of 2012. You can pay whatever you want. All of the money, minus hosting costs and such things, goes to support the Clarion Foundation.
1: And you can find it at awkwardrobots.org.
0: Uh, And of course, for show notes related to Storylogical, the podcast you're listening to right now, links to past episodes, uh, including interviews with writers like Alyssa Wong or Carmen Machado, uh, among many other great writers, and a really growing compilation of appropriate and inappropriate gifts that are chosen to go along with each story. Uh, You can always find us at our home on the web.
1: Storylogical. Dot com. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. <laughs> you can talk about pretty much anything and make it seem like there's a logical structure behind it. Yes. It yeah. doesn't make it true. I this is what took it. me quite a few years to figure that out.
0: Well, I mean, from from that point of view, you could say that you could say the other the other point of view as well.
1: Sometimes it's accidentally true
0: <laughs> no the the truth for the most part is is a bunch of stuff cobbled together that people think makes sense, and so they say it's true
1: right but right, the, and the, the truth truth is just a way of uh, of putting the stitches together in a way that is pleasing or so it becomes invisible, and you can no longer see the the yeah. way the different parts have been sewn.
0: I can imagine people feeling that there's some word drift here. Like, I I do happen to find it easier to separate true and fact. Because I find true has a nice ring to it that sounds like what we mean as humans when something is true in our subjective sense.
1: Right, like in a kind of a, like, emotionally real? Yes. Yes,
0: and also, like, consciously real. Like... I was talking to one of our friends, Pip, he was talking about something and I was like, you mean the way red corresponds generally to a wavelength of some gobbledygook and Mm. we can measure that. And it's always the same gobbledygook wavelength number, but people's experience of red, what is true for them when we say red is presumably different for every single individual.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think they are. I think they are different things because I think sometimes facts aren't true. Right. You can say, you can, you can state two facts and by their proximity, try and imply a uh, correlation or causation, but there is no truth in that. Or maybe there is truth in it, but there are so many confounding factors or intermediary steps that it's, for all intents and purposes, untrue. Yeah.